Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and the Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, and have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Hey, it's Barty A here, and wanted to say God bless you again for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, give us five stars and a nice review. It really does help, and I need all the help I can get. Tyler Shirelli warmed my couch the other day, but before I get into his intro, I wanted to give a heartfelt thank you to our sponsor, Cathead Vodka. He's based in Jackson, Mississippi. We love them because of their vodka, but also for their heart for live music and live musicians. Check them out at catheaddistillery.com and Cathead Vodka on Instagram. What a great story this lad, Tyler Shirelli, has. He dared to dream like most of us as a kid, but he acted on those dreams like few of us do. From watching his pop play guitar at the kitchen table to leading Florida Georgia line through their paces in front of over 20,000 rabid country fans and all points in between, I'm so thankful to have this guy as my friend, Tyler Shirelli. Tyler Shirelli. Hello. Hi, buddy. Hi. What are you doing? I'm drinking some... Uh... Some little coffee, little Death Wish action over yeah. there. I was a black. I was about to say Black Rifle. Well, it's Death Wish, and you, you would just have been wrong. That. I would have been incredibly wrong. It would not be the first, second, third, or fourth time. No, that's all right. So, anyways, so uh, born in Kansas City. I was. I was born in Kansas City. Your dad was a picker. It still is. Still is. Still is. Yeah. And yet, uh, you chose to pick up the drums. I did. I did. How I, come? Uh, I don't know, man. I gravitated towards it. He had a band called Poker Face. They were like a like a corporate like Lady Gaga. <laughs> Gaga, <laughs> the Gaga. <laughs> uh, it it, uh, it predates the Gaga, right? Right. A little right, bit. Yes. Uh, he had known a lot of guys that would make up that band, which was like what kind of formed my musical. Mm-hmm. childhood and the things i still listen to yeah uh they had played in different bands growing up and they all decided we we're like man we want to play in a band together and so the first few rehearsals they did were in our house my childhood house and my folks okay. and uh yeah it was a singer named tom dreyer drummer named mike shard and uh they had a few different guitar players that came through guitar player would become mike walker my dad and then Gary Hollow playing bass, and they had a few different keyboard players. But Mike, the drummer, had this beautiful old set of late uh, 70s Ludwigs. Cool. Cherry red. He still has them. I'm told they're willed to me. I've tried to get them from him a few <laughs> right. times. So he's not done with them yet, and that's right. fine. Well. But that kit, I, it was like, it just, it had a halo over I'll never forget sitting on the steps watching them practice for the first time, mesmerized. Yeah. Up to this point, I had no... It was my first memory of being drawn to music, uh, other than just knowing it was around and I liked it and right. beat on pots and pans. Yeah. But Mike saw that. He saw me gravitate towards that, and he did. He's the sole reason. He told my dad, he goes, you mind if I leave the drums here until next week? Tyler seems like he kind of likes them. So how old are you? I was, oh man, I'm going to say I was 
85. Okay. Because this was 90, 91, okay. 96. I was born in 85. Uh, and so I'm sure the conversation probably started as like, I don't want to take my drums home because yeah. they're drums and I don't want to load them out. Uh, but he was nice enough to let me sit down on him after practice. He, he masked it in a, yeah. in a, oh, a nice yeah. thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and he set me up on the stool and he sat really high. So like my feet just dangled. Right. Right. And I just wailed on him. And he was like, you can play him this week if you want. Have fun. And that was it. I mean, that was literally it. And that would become my 24-7 passion. Yeah. Uh, I was a terrible student in school because all I wanted to do was play music. I never really applied myself to anything. I always used the excuse, like, I'm not good at it. But, I mean, right. I put modern drummer magazines in my like notebook and would look at them in school and get in trouble for it. And, <laughs> Would never do my homework and have to go to like in school suspension until I finished my homework. That happened in middle school, but I always, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. And I was a good kid. Like I wasn't oh, yeah. like doing dumb stuff. I just that was. I had a one track mind, and all it was was playing. Yeah, and uh, it was really interesting because it was never. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't odd to me that I excelled in that. It was just all I knew. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, it just, I'm, I'm thinking about it now when I was home over Christmas, I got underneath my folks TV stand in their, in their living room and opened up the cabinets and there's all of our photo albums. Oh wow. And I was like, man, like I want to look through those. Like I haven't looked through those in a long time and seen pictures of my dad playing and like where my folks are from. And then I'd see pictures of me as a little kid. Did you show Lucy that? Uh, she was too busy playing with her Christmas presents. But there were... Stinking uh, three-year-olds. Uh, it, it's funny you ask, because there were what I showed Lucy. I was like, look at Grandma and Grandpa when they were younger. There's Daddy when he was a little kid and whatnot. And there were a couple pictures that she'd come and be like, what are you doing? And we'd show her, but she right. didn't... Uh, she's still a little young. She's only three. Yeah. So she was still a little young. But she understood. She saw them and thought they were funny. Mm. But so, I found pictures of me when I was young playing... Playing drums. Playing drums. And just, that was my escape, man. I mean, that was my escape from everything. So what got you to the guitar? Uh, were you intimidated by your dad because he was a guitar player? Or was he, did you just think, he's the guitar player, so I'm going to be the drummer? I never thought. I, it was never. Nothing? No, drum, because there was no preconceived, like, I want to play an instrument, yeah. but I'm not going to play guitar. Uh and it, the guitar thing, it would come to pass that, like, Mike Walker, who I mentioned a little bit ago, was dad's, the other guitar player besides mm-hmm. dad in that band when I was growing up. And those guys were all, like, my dads. Like, I would go to their band practices every week. Like, they would let me sit in. Like, I played live for the first time at probably, like, the age of, like, eight, yeah. like seven or eight. It was at the... uh the Kearney Community Center. I think it was the Kearney Community Center north of Kansas City. Okay. Or Liberty, where we were from. And they let me get up after they got done playing, and I played a drum solo. Nice. And it was the first time I ever experienced, like, people cheering or anything like that. Because I never... <laughs> well, yeah. I just wanted to play. And they let me do it, and I just got lost playing. And I was like, oh, this is great. Uh, but there came a time where, as I started excelling on drums, where... Start taking lessons, and then you get into high school, and it comes. It becomes a little bit collegiate because mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, you can get scholarships, and then you're like competing for like district jazz band. Uh, 
And this opens up a whole nother conversation that I'm sure we'll get to in this podcast. Or maybe we won't, because we'll talk about other things like guitars. We can talk about it now. But uh, I really hate that. Yeah. I hate competition in music. I hate it now. I love Nashville, but I can't stand the a little bit of the political aspect of all oh, of that. Oh, sure. And so drums became that, and I didn't. I wanted to get away from it. I yeah. didn't realize it at the time, but Mike gave my dad a Les Paul for Christmas one year, which I still have. It's my main Les Paul, and it was my first guitar. Uh, it was a 91 Les Paul, and he went to a salvage guitar place or somewhere that had like a bunch of beat-up guitars, and he bought these two Les Pauls. One had a great body, and one had a great neck. So he swapped them, and they were two different colors, and I don't think it had pickups or it had a pickup. But he gave it to my dad for Christmas because my dad's a Strat guy. Right. And he, my dad always wanted a Les Paul. And he'd had Les Pauls over the years. In fact, over Christmas, I was finding pictures of my dad playing like this badass gold top and like this old telly. And I'm like, man. And he was like, if I had those guitars now, <laughs> we wouldn't what? have had to pay for the year you went to college. Uh, do you know where they are? Uh, yeah. And like, <laughs> man, his Les Paul was so cool. It had like, it was like Mike Campbell's. It had like the, the rings. The, the, the modification rings to be able to put mini humbuckers mm-hmm. in the full humbucker slot. It was so beautiful. And he had this old SG uh, and whatnot. But then he became a Strat guy, and he always wanted to get another Paul. Well, Mike knew this. So one one year, we were on our way out to Independence, and we stopped by his house because he said he had something for Dab. He wouldn't tell him what. And I'll never forget sitting in the back of the car and him coming out with this guitar. And he put it in the car, and he's like, Mike, just gave me a Les Paul. Holy crap. Took it to Scotty Yates, uh, who still remains to this day one of our best friends. He had a great little guitar shop in Kansas City called Scotty's Guitars, who did like setups and repair mm-hmm. and building. Uh, and he he had it finished black, put some Fralin PAFs in it, nice. some Grover tuners, and that guitar would sit. And my dad would play it every once in a while. But I would sneak into the basement when dad was at work, and I'd get it out and just sit on the floor and strum on it. And... Uh, and he found out about that, and he was so supportive. He was so cool. He was just like, yeah, you can play it. I'm like, Fine. So did you have that one Stevie Ray Vaughan lick or Billy Gibbons lick or whatever, that aha moment that you just had to learn how to play that lick? And that's it was what all the stuff on uh, Slippery When Wet, Bon Jovi. Okay. I remember hearing that and hearing like that soulful blues playing of like, yeah. Wanted Dead or Alive and oh, just dude. all those guitar riffs. Uh Incredibly, like the stylistic aspect of them was like so signature. Yeah, but the 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 bones of those licks was simple enough that I could kind of fuss my way around because right. I watched Dad play enough, and I, I the hook was in deep enough that I could kind of figure it out enough that I just wanted. To, I just started finding myself playing guitar. Yeah, just I no rhyme or reason had no desire to to take lessons. I had no desire to get. Like proficient, it's cool though that you were able to do that with good guitars in the house. Oh, it's man. like you didn't have like I my first guitar was a thirty nine dollar Stella Harmony, mm-hmm. and it hurt my fingers so bad that it was so discouraging. Even yeah. though I I really wanted to play because I started out as a drummer as well. Yeah, and it it that must have been really cool. Going well, I got this really sweet Les Paul over here. I'll just pick it up. Yeah, uh, he had that. It, around that time, he got really into Fender Custom Shop stuff. There's a builder named Vince Canuto, or Canetto. I don't remember how to... I always call him Canetto. Uh, and Dad got a couple of his guitars that were phenomenal. 
but the the other guitar that would start my fascination with Paul Reed Smith, he had a ninety. I don't remember what year, but it was built on my brother's birthday. Nice. He got it at Worldwide Music, and the owner of Worldwide Music's name was Rock Mouse. I'm not making that up. <laughs> And that used to be the guitar shop he loved to go into. And he and my mom went in one day and found this one top, one piece top, Cherry Sumber CE22. PRS had just come out with them. And he got it in. Mike had a PRS. Okay. Which I have. I I, will get into all that. Uh, Mike had one. Dad got one. And that guitar, I'll never forget. The thing I loved most about that guitar was the case had this beautiful leather handle. And it was like the like I, the, the detail of everything about yeah. that instrument was so sexy and attractive to me, and the curves of it, and just everything about it—the tuners with those little triangle locking deals. Oh yeah, everything about it. I didn't know anything about guitar at the time, but I knew I liked that. Yeah, uh, and I would become very fond of that instrument too. And that was like the pinnacle to me uh, of just guitars. And I just that guitar, those two guitars, really kind of shaped it. And I just found myself playing guitar all the time. Still play drums. Yeah. Took lessons. I would go on to get a scholarship to Missouri Western for recording, engineering, uh, and percussion, which was ridiculous because I knew nothing about recording engineering. <laughs> My buddy Brandon and I, uh, we met in high school, and he uh, had gotten Pro Tools and got in, ridiculously proficient at Pro Tools, especially for like a high school kid. Oh, yeah. And and he was an amazing guitar player, and uh, I could play drums. And so we would get together in my folks' basement. We would use my dad's band's sound equipment. And we would set up, and we would try to make re-recordings of songs we liked okay. to see how close we could get to the playing, right. and more importantly, the audio. So I turned that in as like <laughs> my, like I was like, I want to be a recording engineer. Your class project. <laughs> yeah. And the people at the college were like, wait, what? This is really good because Brandon was great, right? <laughs> and uh, and I would help. Like I did knew he get the, a scholarship? Huh? Did he get a scholarship? Uh, he went to L.A. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I hate to say, like we we like we went our separate directions after that. Uh, and I I really hate to say I don't remember whether he went to college or not, but he went to L.A. and started working with John Feldman. Oh, okay. Giant producer out there did the used. Um, Goldfinger, and he would become his engineer. Okay, uh, and, and studio assistant, <laughs> and uh, and still to this day, Brandon does incredible stuff. Like he and I have been really blessed to be able to use everything we learned in my folks' basement and his folks' basement, and we both make a living in the music industry at high levels. Is he now. still in LA? He is, and he's working all the time. Uh, we don't keep up as much as I would like. Because uh, we're so busy, and yeah. I'm terrible at keeping up with people. So that's more on my end than his. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I turned that into college, and I got a scholarship. And uh, all I wanted to do still is is very much a mirror image of my high school career. Like I didn't go to class; I got terrible grades. I was playing in a in a top forty band in Kansas City called One Night Stand, uh, and so I played drums in their band. And I played guitar in this Red Dirt band uh, called Shootin' Blanks. Nice. In Kansas City. And 
that would become the greatest education I could ever have to move to Nashville. I'm detecting a theme with one night stand and shooting blanks. What uh, <laughs> you? Uh, yeah, that I've never ever ever put those two things together, and you just. <laughs> Oh, man, that's, uh, well, you really cinched that one up, did you? <laughs> so 2010, if I have my info correct, mm-hmm. you came to Nashville. Yeah. Why did you choose Nashville over L.A. where you had a friend or mm-hmm. New York or Atlanta or whatever? Why did, or why did you come to Nashville? Uh, first and foremost would be the music that is the nearest to my heart is like Hal Ketchum. Mm-hmm. Marty Stewart, Leroy Parnell. Were you listening to, besides music, were you listening to session guys, Brent yes. Mason? Yes, Brent Mason. Uh, Chris Lusinger. Yeah, Lusinger was, uh, and is to this day, other than Tom Bukovec, my favorite session guitar player. How about Brent Rowan? Brent Rowan's great. Yeah, I love that guy. Troy Lancaster yeah. would be one later that I found out that I liked a lot and I didn't realize it was him. Yeah. But I always found myself gravitating towards the idea of recording. That was a reoccurring theme, even when I was taking drum lessons when I was younger. Mm-hmm. The idea of microphones and creating was really interesting to me. Uh, and I had friends that had moved to Nashville. So I grew up on country music, read those liner notes, and was familiar with those guys. Eddie Bayers, right. being a drummer, was someone I was... Lonnie Wilson. Oh, yeah. Uh, Paul Lime. Uh, those guys, I was familiar with in the drumming community... Uh, and then I would start seeing names like Michael Rhodes and Brent Mason, Rowan, all these guys uh, would start popping up. And I'm like, man, like these guys make a living playing on records every day. Like, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to go to Nashville. I want to I go play music for a living. Uh, I have a buddy, Evan Weatherford, who grew up a block away from me. His dad and my dad played in bands growing up. His folks and my folks were in each other's weddings. Evan is the lead guitar player for Little Big Town. Oh, wow. I didn't uh, know that. He is a year younger than my brother, so he's four years older than I am. Or anyone who wants to do the math, if anyone is listening to this at this point, if I haven't rambled too much. Uh, and uh, he moved to Nashville and went to Belmont. And so that, to me, was like, okay, uh, he did it. So now I know someone who did it. So like that seems like something maybe I could do. Yeah. Uh, my dad has another great friend, Mike Dunn. His son, John, went to Belmont. And so there were, you know, there was dots that could be connected yeah. there. And then while I was at Missouri Western, they were involved in the uh, country music radio seminar, CRS, country radio seminar, pardon me. Uh, that's right, right? Yeah, I've been there uh, more times than I can count. They had a sponsorship with them because our recording engineer, director, Mark, knew a guy there who helped run it. So he brought a van full of us down to Nashville to stuff the bags that folks okay. like you yeah. would pick up when you walk in that would tell you the events and all that. Right. And man, shit, that was it. <laughs> that trip yeah. solidified. There was nothing else I wanted to do after that. It was a beeline. I got back to Kansas City after that trip, and it's all I could talk about. I met someone who would become... Wow. The, you said you didn't have anyone cry on this. Like Telling the story might get me emotional. <laughs> uh, there's a guitar tech in town named Mark Larice, who was with Keith Urban at the time. He okay. was Keith's, if, I might, if my facts are correct, uh, he was Keith's first like really long-time tech after okay. Keith gained 
prominence and started getting his big rigs and known as a guitar guy yeah. around the country. Keith was one of the headliners at this CRS event. Okay. Along with Hot Apple Pie. Oh, they man. were out at, at the time, so like Spanky and Keith and those guys. Yeah. So I went down. I would leave Brady. the desk. Brady. Yeah, Brady. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good Lord. Just the... the Wait, cool. was Spanky in Hot Apple Pie? Mm-hmm. Before he was that. in uh, Leonard Skinner. Okay. Uh, he was a guitar player. And uh, I loved that record. It was really hip yeah, to that cool. record. So we come down in the van and... We go to what was the convention center, which is no more. Uh, and I would sneak away from the desk I was supposed to be stuffing. Right. And I would I would sneak into the convention hall and just stand in the back. And I had the gall to walk up before <laughs> Keith's uh, rehearsal. And I don't know where this confidence came from. I'm glad I don't have it anymore to a certain extent because I probably wouldn't have the jobs I have now. <laughs> But I walked up, and Mark, his tech, was standing up there putting down this old full-tone, full-drive right. pedal. And I had one, and so I was like, hey, man, that's like an old full-drive, too, with the push-pull comp cut. And he's like, uh, yeah. And I was just like, listen, my name's Tyler, and I'm here. Can I come bug you? Can I come hang out? Can I help you with And he anything? goes, uh, you already are bugging me. And, uh, and he was like, you know what? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's cool. Brought me back to Keith's Guitar World, took pictures, took me up on stage, showed me around. Uh, I'd meet uh, Chris Rodriguez, who is Keith's rhythm player and singer. High harmonies and stuff. As good as he is a guitar player, he's twice as good at singing. Yeah. And uh, and whatnot. And got pictures with Mark, and I went back and was telling my parents, I met this guy named Mark Larice, he's Keith's tech, and I'm going to move to Nashville. And my folks couldn't have been any more supportive, as yeah. much as it scared the crap out of my mom. Uh, and it would take a year and a half after that for me to move because I was so scared, because I was fearful. I was like, like, what if I don't make it? Like At that time, I thought my identity was music. Yeah. So if I didn't make it at music, I wouldn't make it as a, like a person. Like right. My viewpoint of myself, which is very unhealthy because we should just be ourselves and love Christ and all that stuff... And we are who we should be. But at that time, I hadn't gotten to that point in my journey. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm babbling. I'm no, like no, no, piecing no. all this stuff together I don't usually ever talk about. So, not to jump ahead, but no. you, you moved down here. Yeah. Was, moved. I know you played with Logan Mize. Yes. Daniel Peck. Yeah. Love and Theft. Yeah. Who did you start with? A guy named Glenn Templeton. Okay. Uh, who uh, I met. This guy named, uh, this kid named Drew Lambert, whose dad, uh, Mark Lambert, uh, was a producer in town and a songwriter. And uh, I met them somehow. I don't remember how I met them, but I did. And he was producing a guy named Glenn Templeton. And this guy named Lance Combs, who was originally from the Midwest, was his manager. And I hopped in a van and went and played some casino gig, some buyer's convention with them. And that was my first gig. Okay. And guitar. Guitar. I was okay. playing guitar. And uh great learning experience. Fun band. Uh and that was my first like shot in the arm of like, oh man, I think I might be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And uh so I played with him and my buddy Brian Bonds, this is another very important 
story of all yeah. this as I'm jumping around. Before I moved to Nashville, Brandon, who I was speaking about earlier, had an audition with an artist named Megan Kabir. And they were looking for drummers, guitar players. Megan? Yeah, songwriter. Yep. Uh, she was uh, putting this act together and she needed a band. Brandon got her contact through John Feldman. I believe it was John. And uh, Brandon was like, dude, come audition on drums. And I wouldn't do it. I was like, I, I'm, I'm scared. I don't want to do it. And finally I was like, screw it. I'll do it. Fine. Drove down, did it. Brian Bonds was a guitar player in the audition band. A guy named Freddie Marsh was the bass player. Uh, and I would get to know these guys. Got their contact info. Got Brian's. Mm-hmm. And would keep up with him. Well, then when I moved, I hit Brian up. I'm like, hey, I'm in Nashville. And Brian was a great player. He uh, was in FGL for a long time. Yeah, he was yeah. FGL, he's original guitar player. Yeah. And he was so good to me. Like, I'm, I'm indebted to him for my Nashville career. Yeah. In most every way. Uh, he taught me how to, he taught me kind of the etiquette. He taught me, uh, you know, use your ears. You know, he's also a, a, is a really good showman. Yes, inc- which, incredible entertainer. Yeah, uh, and at the time, uh, FGL wasn't a thing yet, right? Uh, and that would start to become a thing for him. And and uh, I was playing with Glenn, and Brian knew my abilities, and we always were like, "Oh man, it'll be so fun to play in a band together." Well, in 2011, that opportunity came. He was playing with Florida Georgia Line, and they were doing this thing called the Best Damn Country Tours, FGL, Chase Rice, and Brian Davis. But the caveat of the whole thing is they were going to have a bus. So it was, oh, man, we're going to have a bus, right? But they were going to use one band for all three artists, and the artists would rotate headliners. So every three shows, FGL would be the headliner again, you know, insert other artists for the other nights. Uh. And they needed a rhythm guitar player that could play gancho and a little bit of slide and do some vocals. And so I hopped in, and that would be my first introduction to that group. After that, uh, I started playing with Logan. I auditioned with Hunter Hayes, and I didn't get that gig, but Devin Malone was playing with Logan. He got the Hunter gig, so he put my name in for the Logan gig because... Charlie Salvatore. God, this is so convoluted. There's a lot of... Like, There's yeah. so many names. Just bypass us. If you're listening to this, fast forward for the next 10 <laughs> seconds. Charlie was the tour manager of the Best Damn Country Tour. He was also Logan's manager. Okay. Logan was looking for a guitar player. Logan's from Kansas. I'm from Missouri. Uh, we were both Tom Petty fanatics. So mm-hmm. Charlie kind of saw these two pieces, and he's like, I could put those together. Right. Well... It was such a blessing because at the same time, my buddy Devin was auditioning for Hunter Hayes and didn't get it. So he recommended me. And that would become my relationship with Logan. And uh, went on and played with Logan. Quit Logan to play with Love and Theft. Got fired from Love and Theft. Were you playing guitar or drums with all these guys? Both. Okay. So guitar with FGL. Okay. Guitar or drums with Logan, depending on... The weekend, depending on who was available, because at that time, like Logan didn't have the the funds to be able to keep a band. Sure. So we had our core group that we would get to. Yeah, yeah. But building up to that, I I found myself being able to kind of fill in where he needed. Uh, but we really had a connection when I was playing guitar. Yeah. That's kind of where that was what was really special about that. And 
You're playing drums with Love and Theft, though, right? Yeah. yeah. I was their drummer and band leader, which uh, I got canned from that, which is the best thing. For being too sexy, probably? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, for anybody who's listening to this that may be an up-and-coming person and wants any advice, uh, I was too busy having my gig to do my gig. I was getting an, a Gretsch endorsement, and I was... Yeah, getting my kit set up, and I was busy talking about how cool it was to have a label gig, and I wasn't serving the artists. Now, at the same time, I will say this: uh, Stephen and Eric were both drinking a lot, and and they weren't keeping it together. Yeah, and uh, so the whole thing was kind of unstable. Uh, but my responsibility in that was. Uh, I just I didn't do a great job at just first and foremost putting the job first. Yeah. So I got fired from that and would learn that that was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me. I wouldn't trade for anything. I remember right after I got the FGL gig, uh, Love and Theft was on the bill. Yeah. And I went up to Eric and I thanked him. He said, thank you for letting me go. Thank you for hmm. firing me. I can't explain to you what I learned. Yeah. And he looked at me like, are you going to punch me in the face? Like, is there a catch to this uh but i meant it well it, it helped you oh my god it humbled you enough to figure out what was important yeah and yeah. start to realize that like being in nashville being anywhere playing music life is not about oh look at my posts right look like let me like i <laughs> you and i talked about that yeah off all this like 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 that's not what it's about it's a, b- a business it's very yeah. important to do that, but at the time I was trying to make myself look bigger than I was. Uh, sure, and it, it really kind of opened me up to be like, man, I've, I, I have a healthy ego, and I need to make sure I'm doing all this for the right reasons. Uh, but you kind of need a healthy ego, one hundred percent. Yeah, it, and it's a good thing as long as it's healthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was a, a really interesting time. I'd go back and play with Logan. And he started using us in the studio a lot. And I really got comfortable in a great way creating and enjoying that environment. Yeah, figuring out parts and stuff. Yeah. Instead of just mimicking or learning other guys' parts, exactly. you're figuring out your own parts. Yeah. Yeah. And we would work at the quad a lot. And so it was great to be in a facility to learn about sounds, learn yeah. about all that stuff. Creating. Logan was incredibly passionate about that band we had at the time. We had Derek Wyatt on drums and Phil Snowden on bass. And then we would use, uh, we used David Doran. We used our buddy Jared on keys, who was kind of, man, he was a diamond. He was awesome. Uh, and yeah, so we'd bring in keys players, but we had this core band that would tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, we cut some really great songs uh, during that period of time. One of them became a single for him called Used Up. Oh, okay. That he put out that uh, that we did, and that was really neat to hear. Is he that. on Arista? No. Where was he? He's on Sony. Is he still there? No. Okay. No. Uh, but through this whole time, he was with Big Yellow Dog. Okay. And so at that time, I didn't understand the business very well. So I always just, I never understood like the record side versus management. I understood yeah. they're separate. Right. But at that time, we were doing a lot of label showcases. But Logan... The thing that I love about him, and it's also the thing that drove me nuts, uh, and now I understand more than ever how beautiful it is and how I wish more people had it, was Logan always knew what he wanted, and he was never willing to yeah. sacrifice, yeah. good or bad. Right. Stubborn, yes, 
but he knew what he wanted, and he 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 was willing to play the game to an extent. Dude, I always think as long as you're willing to live with the results, that's a pretty strong place to come from. Yeah. Now you may not be the next Garth. Mm-hmm. You may spend the rest of your life in a van with three other guys. Yeah. But as long as you're if you're happy. Absolutely. And if you're proud of the decisions you make. And I always I always told artists when I was at record companies, you have to figure out what success is. Your definition of success. Yes. If you're going to be the next Garth or the next Dixie Chicks or the next FGL, prepare yourself for a lifetime of disappointment because yeah. those things are meteors, you know, and they come once in a blue moon. But if your definition is doing what you love, playing music with your buddies and having a then rock on. Yeah. 100%. And like when those meteors happen uh we'll get there. Yes. Uh it it comes to like what do you do with it? Yeah. What's the greater purpose of it all? Cuz it's not just to be a famous singer. Yeah. Uh you know, we have a greater purpose to use that platform for. And that's why you have that platform yeah. in my opinion. But uh yeah, playing with Logan to this day uh, in certain ways, is the most fulfilling thing I ever did because, uh, totally separate from FGL, where I am a a employee of and a sideman too, very involved. Sure, and we are a band, and and but that is the that is my job at the core of it, and I can never forget it because that's what helps us do our jobs well is knowing our place. Yeah, with Logan, I was a band member for mm-hmm. a lot of. For a better way to put it, it was his name, but we all created together. Yeah, and we, there's a, an ownership there that made that really special. When he lost, we all lost. When he won, we all won. Right, uh, and that was beautiful. And I have come to really cherish those times. Uh, so yeah, that was a really fun era of me coming up in town. Was getting to have those experiences in a band setting. So what at the Logan Mize level, the love and theft level, did you learn that helped you do your gig? And I'm not saying these guys are beneath FGL, mm-hmm. but FGL is a really massive band. What, what, what did you learn that prepared you that helped you get to that next level? Oh man. Or maybe you just answered that. I don't know. I, I think so. Uh, in a lot of ways, because the first part of me being an FGL was my greatest learning experiences I've ever had. All of that stuff taught me how to exist on the road, how to communicate with people. I was a band leader in most of all of those scenarios mm-hmm. with Logan, with Love and Theft, again with Logan when I came back. You're the band leader now, but you weren't when you got into Correct. FGL, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of... Uh, I, I learned how to roll quickly with things. I learned how to exist uh, and make decisions on the spot. Uh, I learned how to represent an artist. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, you always are 24 hours a day. Yeah. But uh, I learned that. I learned a lot of what not to do. <laughs> Good, bad, yeah. and indifferent. Um, and I learned how to prepare. That was the biggest thing I learned how to do. Uh, and Brian hmm. taught me how to do that. Uh, one of the best things he said, I remember getting called to do the Hunter Hayes audition and I was out with Glenn and I was like, man, I, I can't do it. And he was like, why? 
And I go, well, I'm out on the bus, and when am I going to prepare? And then I get home, and i got to pull my gear off. He goes, do you want to do this or not? He goes, someone else will do it. That's fine. But do you want to do it or not? And he goes, get your butt on the bus. When everyone goes to bed, go to the back lounge and don't sleep tonight. Put in your headphones, grab a guitar, and learn the parts. Okay, that's what I wanted to ask you about the audition process, because I've never done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, so... What's what's step one? You say putting on the headphones. You're listening to music, listening, 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 yeah. playing along, playing along. And then, like, how do you – you know the audition is Wednesday at 10. Mm-hmm. How many songs do you prepare? Do they tell you what to prepare? How, how much gear do you bring? Who's there when you're playing? I mean, is is the artist there? Is the band there? Are you playing by yourself? I mean, how does this all – Go down. Everything you just said is yes. Okay. <laughs> so all I know is from my experiences. Right. And I'm sure everyone's are different. For the first part of in Nashville, it was just like, oh, come jam. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Right. When I did the love and theft thing, I had to fill in uh, for Brian on guitar because he was going on vacation. So the first, it was actually, it was really beautiful because there was no expectation. I wasn't up for a gig. I was filling in for a buddy. Right. So I just learned the tunes. They sent me the set list. I learned the songs. Brian showed me the parts he played. Uh, and I got on YouTube and I watched all of their, okay. all of their performances up to the recent that I could. Because right. what they don't send you is transitions. What they don't tell you sometimes okay. is, well, we do this in a different key. Right. Well, we double this intro, right? right? They send you the record and they're like, here you go. Right. <laughs> And so that's the thing I tell everyone. I said, don't just listen to what they send you. Get on YouTube. Dude. Learn the transitions between the songs. Learn that vocal thing he does that you, you don't realize. Like Watching is just as important as listening. Yeah. Uh, look at what they're wearing. I'm so, I'm so envious of kids now because, I mean, if you look at thinkingandrinking.com, there's a thing called stories on there. Yeah. And my, I, one of the stories is me and my brother, especially me, used to have our turntable and we'd put nickels and dimes and quarters on the stylus Mm -hmm. to slow the record down, not realizing we were destroying vinyl, but to slow it down to learn licks and stuff. And now with YouTube, holy cow, there's nothing you can't learn. Nothing. Anybody. So that's that's great advice. That's Yeah. So yeah, what are they wearing? Yeah. So you don't show up. It's because it's the last ten percent that the when you show up and you can make an artist feel that comfortable. Yeah. Because there's a million great players. Yeah. And don't use charts. Right. Don't, like, I'll learn stuff charting because there's things that I'll realize that I'll spend time writing. Yeah. Uh, that if I don't, I notice the things I forget. So, like, I'll chart. And then I put the chart in a drawer. I don't need it anymore. It's just it puts your mental perspective of getting the guitar out of your hand and really paying attention to the mechanics of the song right so that's a given and then everything else after that is all of the reading between the lines stuff like um on that particular gig i used brian's rig brought my guitars and my board but i used his amp okay uh and i filled in and we all got along well steven and i uh, and eric got along well i loved their record because I had just discovered who Tom Bukovac was, so I was, mm-hmm. I was digesting everything he played on because I resonated with his style of guitar playing like everyone else in Nashville yeah. does. But he plays so emotionally, and it's so special. So their record was one that had some really great guitar playing on it. Yeah. So I was already familiar with the material. Uh, and so that 
that uh, that connection was already made. So when they needed a drummer, it was kind of like, "Hey guys, do you mind if Tyler auditions?" They're like, "Oh yeah, we remember him. Yeah, sure." <laughs> so I did the same thing. I started the process all over on a different instrument. Okay, and I got the gig. Uh, and I did things like they had this song called Amen that had a drum loop. Nobody up to that point had made the loop. So I went to my buddy Chris's house, and I said, I don't know how to program this, but you do. Will you make this for me? So I showed up at the audition with my iPod, and I said, hey, I just need an eighth-inch jack. Here it is. And I started the loop, and they looked at me like, holy crap. Yeah. It's just that little stuff that it's just never just learn your job. Right. And when I got the FGL call. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I learned everything. I mean, they told me the FGL thing was so great because Joey Moy, the producer, is so particular yeah. and scientific about the way he organizes things that in my inbox, I got soloed stems of parts. Not even the whole song, but like, here's just the mm. stem for the second verse of Round Here because it has this da, 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 this tremolo chop part. Right. Well, I'm like, well, that was clearly edited. You know, or they used this particular pedal, the name of it, I forget, that's got all these pattern tremolos. But that was a perfect example of, okay, I'm not asked to learn that part, but I'm going to learn it. Right. Because I know it's in the tracks that they're running, but I want to know it. Started learning the harmonies, started learning the electric parts, even though I had to play acoustic. So when I showed up at the audition, it was at SIR in the biggest room they had, which is a very big room. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, there'll be a band. Nope. It was Seth England, okay. their manager, Brian, the band leader, and Kevlar, Kevin, who was the videographer, and a video camera. And they provided a marshal. Okay. So I was like, well, this is going to be different. So I'm auditioning to the tracks. I'm playing guitar karaoke. And so I met with like, okay. Like my thought process was like, well this is the goofiest thing I'm ever going to do because I've got to play like there's 20,000 people in front of me. So, <clears throat> excuse me, are you like, is the video camera just, just to let the band see what you yes. look like? Yeah, or t- are you actually like performing like... I was, the video, no, the video camera was running and that was the eye for it's everyone It's halftime at the Super Bowl yeah, for you. Yeah, that's okay. it. This is my audition. And okay. Joey, the producer, is going to watch it. Tyler and BK are going to see it, like management's going to watch it. There's a lot of, because at this point, FGL's a big act. Yeah. And it was almost, to me, a detriment that I had played with them before, because now I'm a buddy. Right. Now I'm someone that played with them before that they're reconsidering. Yeah. And there were seven other dudes. And so again, like I was calling Dan Weller, who's from Kansas City. He played, at the time he played keys. Now he's our rhythm guitar player. Yeah. Uh, I called Dan. I'm like, what do you guys wear during the show? I want to know. Uh, what's the vibe? Like, what's the, the, you know, what's the climate like in the band? Like, so is there seven guys in the hallway, all with a guitar and a pedal board? No, and that's another thing that I did. I showed up for everyone's audition. I didn't show up for my time slot. I got there an hour before the first audition. I think I was the last. Okay. I wanted to hear everyone. I wanted to pay attention to things that they weren't getting. I wanted to th- listen through. I walked outside. This is very stalkerish. Uh, in the back door of that room, there's a garage door so you can load in production. Right. I sat out on the picnic table and I listened. Okay. Because I wanted to walk in and execute and annihilate everything I had heard. Yeah. So, and do what the other guys aren't doing. And do what the other guys aren't doing. Yeah. And there were guys that showed up. One guy had khaki pants on. Another dude, they just like, uh, they all played great. Right. 
but that's a given. That's why you're there. Yeah. So I remember going out and I bought an outfit, as dumb as it sounds. Like I showed up with a rack of guitars in a trunk and I had them all laid out and tuned. So when I rolled in, there's a lot that people are paying attention to that people don't understand. Well, just You already have or don't have the gig when you walk in the room. It's professional preparation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of guys like kind of like stumbling in with their stuff and cables. And it was like, man, like all of that at that level matters. Yeah. You show up, you plug in, and you be the one asking questions. Know it better than the people you're auditioning right. for. So when you're auditioning, you go, here's everything I have prepared. What would you like to hear first? So that their answer is, that you're, you've already given them the posture of, oh, he already knows a gig. Like, uh, play, play what you would play in the show. Right. So now I'm able to craft my part. I'm not just playing the parts that they asked me to play. I'm crafting, like, if I had this gig and I had to learn these parts... Here's what I would craft for a song. That's what I did. Uh, not every song allowed for that. Some of them were acoustic stuff, but that's what I did. And then I could ask them, which vocal part do you want? Well, we kind of want someone to do high vocals. Well, I'm glad I learned those. So you learned all the vocals? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a great vocalist, and I don't sing in the band, but that was part of the audition. Yeah. So I faked it the best I could. Uh, but by no means is that a strong suit, but I knew him. Yeah. And I made sure that when I left, even if someone else got the gig, I did the best I absolutely could. And I, I got the gig. And you've been there since 2013? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few different iterations of the band. Yeah. Uh, and so I've, I've worn some different hats. Well, like, like what, and I know you're like a, the biggest gear experimenter that <laughs> I that I know. <laughs> like, can you just walk two minutes at a time through some of the of course some of the gear you've used? Yeah, uh, the my rig when I got that gig, uh, I played Shaw amps. Okay, Kevin Shaw, a Nashville resident out in Lebanon. Uh, I had three of his heads and two cabinets. Uh, which was ridiculous. I did it because I could, and I wanted to live the dream, right? Absolutely. And you so, had a guitar tech. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we had a great one, Jimmy. He did great. Oh, he was yeah. great. And he would become a band member. Yes. Which, but to answer your question, uh, I used his Full Tilt 30 and his Retro Mod, uh, which were hand-wired amps. And I ran them in mono, but... Uh, uh, just that was my rig, that was my rig. Some pedals on the floor. I'm a big full tone fan. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I had my Les Paul. Dad gave me. Yep. Had a PRS. I had uh, a Welch Les Paul and a Welch Telly that uh, I think it's David David Welch gave me before he closed down his shop. But we used some of his guitars. Uh, Taylor Tim Godwin at Taylor. That's the very first endorsement acoustic endorsement I okay. had, and the only one I have. Uh, that's not true. It's the only one I still kind of keep up with. I play McPherson as well. Yeah. Uh, and Larry and those guys are fantastic. But uh, I've, I've created a really great relationship with Taylor. And Tim, that was the first acoustic endorsement I had. And Tim uh, was so gracious. And I got a 814 and a 712 slotted headstock acoustic. Yeah, that's a cool guitar. And uh, that, those are my acoustics. And you obviously are a PRS yeah. fan and friend. Yes. 
I I have PRS guitar. I had at that point I've got PRS guitars and the very first freaking weekend I'm out with FGL, the Les Paul headstock breaks off. Got dropped in the back of the trailer. It's broken a few times up to this point, but this time was real bad. Digging do that? Uh no, stage <laughs> hand. But he's the one who broke it to me. Thank God Jimmy I, I love Jimmy. He was oh, so dude. honest. He goes, Hey man. Hey man. Here's the deal. I can just hear him. Hey, man. Hey, man. Uh, so this sucks. I love that guy. Oh, yeah. And he was so great. He goes, hey, man, this, this is what happened. He's the only man that's ever braided my beard. And would still. Just a little side. He's the only man who's done a lot of things we know about. Yeah, yeah. And he's better for all of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you were using the Archons, weren't you? Or how are you pronounce that? Archons. I never did. I thought you did. That Dan used them and BK used one. Okay. I used one as a backup a couple of times. My HXDAs went away, uh, and I used those. So I was sold out on Sean. Still am. Those amps are incredible. But it got to a point where we were doing a lot of fly dates. Yeah. And at that time, I still thought people showed up only for the guitar tone. I didn't think they actually wanted to hear Chris. <laughs> I thought they were just there to, to hear us play. And see my rig, so right. I was like, "Well, Kevin, like, I need to stay consistent, <laughs> like, uh, so I'm going to need amps for TV." And he's like, "Man, I love you, but I can't take on that expense to ship amps to different places. Yeah. PRS is offering you should do that." And so I started using PRS amps uh, and left the shots on, which are great. Oh, they're incredible. Doug Sewell from Texas had uh, Sewell Custom amps. Yeah. Uh, which I had seen playing in the Red Dirt community. We'd open for a lot of guys in Kansas City. Oh, yeah. Uh, and especially Pat Green, his guitar player, Brett, had okay. a tool. It sounded incredible. Yeah. Uh, so PRS hired Doug, started building amps through them, but they looked just like the Sewells. And uh, up until I went to um, the Fractal, which I use now, I use PRS amps, and they're incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I am exclusive PRS guitars on the road. And uh, I use them at home when applicable. I use a lot more other stuff when I record, just out of the needs uh, for that. But but, uh, but man, they they're just consistent. They're great. When something does break, it's overnighted. Yeah, like great they stand company. behind their product. Uh, and it got to a point where, as I've grown and kind of matured, uh, if I can say that yeah. <laughs> very loosely. Uh, <laughs> They're not there. Like digital has become so unbelievable. Well, you mentioned the fractal. I mean, everybody I know is either playing fractals or campers. Yeah, apples just, and oranges. Yeah. What are your needs? Both of them meet it. But they're just so easy. Like you can literally put your pedal board in a backpack. Yeah. And I, I feel bad for some of the amp manufacturers because, like. Yeah, I, I, they've got to not be selling as many apps as they used to. No, and and it's it, the thing that's so great is the consistency. Yeah, the sounds are great. The things you're able to tweak scratches the itch of anyone who loves to tweak. Well, and as you very well know, you may have your favorite Marshall Plexi or whatever, and from day to day, it may change exactly five percent, ten percent every day. Yeah. And with a fractal or a camper, if your whole pedal board 
gets left out in the rain and run over by a semi, you can get another one just like it. And you've got all the sounds and everything on yeah, your laptop. Exactly. And within 30 minutes, you have your specific tones yeah. for your specific gig. And it like, yeah. it's perfect. I didn't want to like it. I'll say like, oh, I absolutely. It and absolutely. I it. And then as I, you know, you go through other stuff way outside of music in your life and you start to realize like, oh, A, they're not there for me. Yeah. And B, right. I'm here for a bigger purpose than to just, yeah, you know, live in my little bubble. I was just like, man, this isn't fun. Like all this stuff isn't fun. It, yeah. it was, but I'm looking over here. Dave, one of my best friends, bless him, spent his entire day trying to <laughs> deal with this monstrosity of BS that has become my guitar rig, which was awesome. Yeah, and when it worked, it was great. It looked cool. And yeah, it looked cool. And because uh, at that point, I'd, I'd gotten a cabinet, and I was like, "I'm going to do this thing up. I've never got to do this before, so I'm going to go there." And it was miserable. Yeah. And uh, so we went to a fractal. Got the AX8 dialed in sounds. My buddy Devin came over and showed me a couple tricks he had learned that worked really well. And I've been there ever since. I, I run a, my acoustics through it. I need to talk Dobro. to Devin. Say again? I need to talk to Devin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bone to pick. No, to help uh, with mine. <laughs> and, uh, man, it is so... The shows are more fun, man. Yeah. Bart, the shows are more fun because I have the whole thing programmed. Intro, verse, chorus, solo, outro. Uh, I I can enjoy my fellow bandmates. And you can I, enjoy playing. I can enjoy playing. It sounds great. I listen back to the board tapes. Uh, the guitars sound like they should every night. Every night, yeah. I can. The, and here's what I love the most: we have one of the best front of house guys, Jared. Oh yeah, he's incredible. He's awesome, and he's very direct. And what I love about him is he's honest. If something doesn't sound good, he says it. Yeah, and he's so he's so good at articulating like this is what I need or this is what's not working. Right, and I can get my laptop out, plug in, and he can be like, "Man, that patch, your 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 verse patch." We had this on a song. He goes, it's a little hot. I'll just back it down 3 dB. You know, or I'll turn that up yeah. a little bit. And if we get a new song, I can build a new patch. I don't have to go, man, I don't have that pedal on my board. Right. Dave, we got to redo this. You just get in and pull it up. I've got an expression pedal. Whatever. It's great. Yeah. And my whole rig now is the fractal floorboard. Like three main electrics and a backup for each. An acoustic and a dobro. Now we can all like have fun experiencing life together, and Dave doesn't have to deal with all that. And I'm not up there fussing with stuff I don't need to be fussing with in people's way. I don't need to be in their way. And the band was able to send one semi home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it, and so it's been uh, that was um, that was really that was a game changer for me. Yeah. And I've become, I, I'm really fortunate, like as I've started doing more studio work, I've been working on acquiring pieces for that, like amps and stuff, and I can which leave is, those at home and enjoy them. Yeah, which is totally different, and yeah. you don't take your best, like you don't take your dad's Les Paul out on the road anymore. No. You're able to leave it at home and use it yeah. for sessions and whatever. Yeah, and uh, and not to say you can't use that PRS stuff for sessions, I do it all the time. Yeah. Uh, it just, it's situational. Right. And so, yeah, man. I mean, it's uh, that's kind of on that side of things. That's where we're at today. And 
and uh, things have gotten really streamlined and really fun. Yeah, that's cool. And so, you're happily married. Yes, have a kiddo on the way. Uh, man, yeah, the like touring and being a musician and whatnot. Like, I'll never forget Lucy being born, and I've told the story before. Like going through a really big depression. Like kind of really realizing that, like, oh man, like what I thought life was supposed to be actually isn't what life is supposed to yeah. be at all. And my incredible wife has been there with me every step of the way through every wrong decision I've ever made and every dumb thing I've ever done. And, and she's just been a light and the biggest blessing. And I'm That's so awesome. thankful uh, that she's stuck with me through all of it because it's been it's great now. And finding God through that depression, like realizing like how much God loves us no matter yeah. what we do. Uh, and being able to, you know, realize that and use a platform to like love people and help Absolutely. people has been the most gratifying part of what I do now. And our bosses, Tyler and BK have lit that torch and kind of showed us the way to do that with all the philanthropic work they do. Uh, and, and the way they take care of those who help take care of them has been a really humbling, incredible learning experience. And it's also nice for your wife and you to be on the road with two guys that are married that are crazy about their wives. Yeah. And it's like yeah. <laughs> being I faithful mean, to your wife is really encouraged out there. Yeah. And I'll, I mean, I we've had these conversations in our home, so I'll say I'm there. There's been a lot of times we've all almost taken really wrong turns. Yeah. On yeah, the road. Absolutely. You know, growing up and not realizing like, oh, I've had one too many drinks. Oh, why am I in this situation? Yeah. Uh, and I'm proud to talk about this stuff because of, you know, turning around and going, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Like, I almost got to a really bad spot, but I'm not going to do that. Right. Uh, and realizing that there's grace in that and realizing the learning experience. And, and like, you're growing from it. And growing from it and just and recognizing it. And, you know, I've kind of found a new passion lit in me of wanting to help mentor younger players. Yeah. And people who, who don't, no one warns them. And no one warns you, like, when you get to well, the whole life, level. The whole lifestyle can just be a, a coupon book of idiocy. You know, yeah. and that lifestyle is so encouraged, and we all took part in some degree of that when yeah. we were younger, and so growing out of that is is awesome. So, and I think there's a deeper thing there too, where like so much of your upbringing creates so much of the activity that you use to cope with it. Yeah, and I found in our band situation through some of the growing pains we've experienced, those aren't bad people. Yeah, those are people who are coping with things that happen to them, and they don't know how to cope with it. So they do anything they can, and it is idiotic. But yeah. they, they, you know, you don't know how to break that habit if you don't know why you have it in the, have that habit in the first place. Right. And I mean, it, uh, this is going to make me sound so silly, but it's like those people just need someone to love on them, absolutely, and just to let them know: a, it's okay; b, I understand; yeah, c. Let's get to the root of the, the, not the symptom, but the root. Yeah. And so many people just get passed off. And because the train's got to keep moving, yep. the business has to keep running. And I think Tyler's been really involved in OnSite, which is a, a counseling community. Uh, and he's become very vocal with that, with like Thomas Rett and people. 
Uh, and that's been encouraging. It's encouraged me to talk about my story a little bit more of like going to counseling and, you know, you learn yeah. about your childhood and you learn how to really love people and like take pain away and, and replace it with love and rebirth. And that's a real thing. Absolutely. It sounds silly and, and fairy taleish, but it's not, man. It's, it's embedded in our DNA and it's a part of who we are. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And, and I think it's incredible and I love, and I'm proud of there's people that are starting to talk about it. Absolutely. And I'm, I, I well, and I think that's the purpose of why I'm where I am. You also know that if you've got a problem, somebody else has the exact same yeah. problem. So it's like, well, maybe we can lift each other up by talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and there's no shame in that. Absolutely. It's, it's man. freeing and it's awesome because you help people and, and, and thank goodness, like, uh, I'm still here. Uh, that makes it sound a lot worse than it is. I'm I'm proud to still be on the FGL train. Yeah, because I can use it to absolutely as a platform for that. And that's really these days kind of become my purpose. I love going out and playing, but I love meeting people and I love getting to to talk to younger players and people and talk to them about stuff that like like how's your heart? Yeah, like how's your head? Like. Like, why are you doing this? Why do you play? Why are you motivated to do the things you do? Yeah. And kind of making sure, you know, the car's fine-tuned and in check. Uh, and and it helps me keep myself in check, too. Absolutely. It's so, good stuff, man. Yeah. Well, you want to do my, uh, my 10 questions? I would love to. All right. What this is, I'm going to ask a question. I don't want you to think. I just want you to answer. Okay. Cool. What's your favorite book? Oh, my favorite book would have to be, uh, it's an author named uh, Richard Foster. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. It's a faith-based book talking about the disciplines that the Bible talks about. That can seem very archaic and silly until you realize how much our spirit is based in being designed to uh, tithe, reconciliation, uh, fasting, those things, I grew up in a very predominantly Catholic home to where those were like very much act-based loved ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, I only do these to earn God's love. Well, no, it benefits me yeah. to do all of those things. And that book kind of met me at a time where I didn't realize I needed to read it, but it was sitting there, and I was kind of like, well, <laughs> I can't go any further south in this depression, so right. this stupid book sitting here, I guess I'll open it. And it was like, oh, man. And he has two other books there that I would go on to read. But that book was really special. What's your so, favorite food? Chinese. What's your favorite quote? Oh, man. <laughs> you can skip that if you want to. No, no, no. There, I, I, a ton just flooded to me. I think the one that I love is, there's no such thing. Luck is when preparation and opportunity meet. All right. What's your favorite guitar? Mm-hmm. Do you own or have played or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that Les Paul, man. Yeah? Yeah. Which, uh, what was the first concert you saw and how old were you? My dad's band, Poker Face. Nice. I, I, I was so young. Uh, my first real concerts I went to, though, were at uh, Kemper Arena in Kansas City and like Diamond Rio. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, that's, I, I think Diamond Rio and Hal Ketchum were the two first. They'd have the rodeo. Like, uh, and so dad and the band that we would all get tickets. And I remember, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, those were the first two concerts of like 
like big acts. I remember going to see. If you weren't a picker, what would you be doing? Uh, psychology. Really? Yeah. I, 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 Why I, would you say that? Just because of the, the yeah. I don't, know, I don't know, man. <laughs> what makes you feel like that? Well, <laughs> let me lay down on this couch, give me a box of tissues, and we'll talk about it. What's next? Recording. I'm. Uh, I want to. I want to play on records and create music. Yeah. Yeah. Are you doing as much going to a studio session, or are you doing as you are people sending you stems like you were talking about, and just recording at the house? It's flip flopped. I used to do all recording at the house on a lot of demos and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, Corey Crowder and Jordan Schmidt and Daniel Ross uh, were three guys that really. Uh, invested in me mm-hmm. a couple years ago uh and now i'm going to studios okay now i'm doing a lot less at home and i'm i'm spending a lot of time in recording studios which is great yeah it's really cool do you have any uh social media things you want to i've got an instagram taco shirley music and every once in a while uh i'll post something on there <laughs> Whether it's, hey man, look at me recording today. Look how good I look. Look how cool these guitars look. Uh, but no, I, every once in a while I do. Awesome. Uh, I'll toss some stuff up on there. It's usually uh, uh, letting people know I'm still alive. And, and you know, you got to post that you're working for people to know you're working, and that's a way to do it. So yep. I'll hop on there. But I, I the, the more down that I get, the more that uh, I understand they're in a different time, but all of my favorite session players didn't have that. Oh, no. Absolutely. And all the guys that I constantly look up to, and I'm not poo-pooing anyone that yeah. does social media. I thrive best when I'm not comparing myself to other people and yeah. going, well, they're working today and I'm not, because I'm the type of person who will see that, and I automatically am not inspired anymore. I get frustrated and upset. Yeah. And it's not good for me to look at it. So I kind of want to just get a, a little further away from it. Well, man, uh, I'm very thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. Glad we're friends. I love you. Thanks for doing this. I love you, pal. I'll uh, I'll give you a hug later. Okay. Okay. Goodbye. Okay, we got one last story. Sorry, I didn't finish the Mark Larice thing. Like, because <laughs> I always give him a hard time, and he always tells me he has nothing to do with my success. I met him at that CRS and lost track of him, and I got the FGL gig in our very first. Uh, uh, the very first weekend back on the Luke tour that they had started and I had joined, so this was my first weekend on the Luke okay. tour, I walk into catering and Mark Larice is sitting there. He had left Keith uh, and uh, he got hired by, uh, oh my gosh, Michael Carter. Oh, okay, with to, Luke. With Luke yeah. to be his guitar tech. And okay. I walk in and I kind of stop dead in my tracks and I go over and sit at the table I'm like, hey, man. He's like, hey, man. I'm Mark. Because he's got long hair, and he's like the quintessential Southern man. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're not going to remember this. And I told him the story, and his jaw hit the table. Yeah. And I was like, you inspired me to go home and buck up and move. And I said, now I'm here, and it's your fault. He's like, I had nothing to do with it. And, and it was so special to me. Yeah. To get to be able to share with him the impact he made. And he still makes. Yep. There, I got tears. You've now had someone have tears. All right, now you know what the sound of tears is. Yeah, no, but uh, uh, that was one of the most special moments in Nashville, just to let him know, like, 
you invested in me that day. Yep. Another mundane day. And knowing what I know now about touring, those are the most frustrating days because you're home, but you're not because it was yeah. in Nashville. Oh, dude. So he's working. Yeah, there's this nothing event. worse than staying at a hotel in your hometown. Yeah. And he still took the time to show a kid around. Yeah. And that gave me the motivation to want to be a part of that and to get to be on tour and to get to get up on stage and play and look over and see him was just one of those full circle moments that just, it yeah. still blows my mind. And it was so special to get to share that with him. Awesome. There's that story. That right. came back around. We're out. Thanks, Good night. Man. Good night. <laughs>